Well, hey, friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here, as always. I'm super grateful that you've chosen to download and to spend a little time with me. This conversation today is a great one. I know that you're going to enjoy it. We're going to talk about emotions and uh, kind of our our guest story, as always. Uh, Before we get to that, though, there's a lot of things that I would love to cover with you. So first of all, thank you to everyone who reached out recently um, after hearing about what happened at my kid's school. Uh, definitely has been an interesting time. Um, it's it's just really strange, to be honest with you. I feel like the kids are bouncing back. Uh, they're having a lot of fun and, and you know going to really short days at school. And at the same time, um, parents like myself, my wife, and a bunch of other parents that we know um, are just kind of struggling with it a little bit. We find we're not able to focus a lot and and um, our mind wanders. And it's just, uh, it's interesting. Those are all symptoms of kind of having a, a trauma that you have to work through. It's tough. It's really kind of tough. Um, it's different than anything I've, I've experienced before. So I appreciate your prayers for that. Um, a couple of other things. So, uh, a couple things are available on the um, website. I actually created some Halfway There shirts. So if you want to get some Halfway There merchandise, um, you can go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com as usual. Click on the merch uh, link up at the top, and that will take you to a Public store where you can pick up um, a halfway there podcast shirt, which I thought was just super, super cool. Uh, I can't wait to get mine and put it on and I'm going to order them for my whole family, um, which I think, uh, will be awesome. We can just be little walking advertisements for the show. Um, but it's our, it's our logo and, and you can get it in all kinds of different colors, different sizes, whatever you need. Um, anyway, just go, go check that out. I think, you will enjoy that. Now, here's the other thing I, I launched this week is Patreon. In fact, I wanted to mention a couple of people who recently supported us. First of all, thank you so much to Jason Richards. Jason reached out and uh, he encouraged me to do Patreon. He's a good friend of mine. He helped. You guys don't know him, but you've been affected by him because a lot of the equipment that I have, he helped uh uh, help me get through another gener- generous donation. So he's one of my good friends um, who's always very, very generous um, to to me and to the show. I think he believes in, in what we're doing. So Jason, uh, if you hear this episode, thank you so much for supporting us at such a generous level. Uh, and then also uh, Cinda Brown supported me as well, uh, supported the show. So thank you for doing that. Friends, you can go, again, just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com and up at the top, it says support. Click on that support button. It'll take you to Patreon. Now, what do you get when you support us on Patreon? Well, a couple of things. First of all, every month, no matter what level you support at, you could do $5 a month, whatever, no big deal. Um, you're going to get an extra bonus conversation. In fact, the reason I bring that up here is because this month, our bonus conversation is with today's guest. And so if you enjoy it, you can actually go out and get um, more from our guest by supporting us on Patreon. Again, you go to halfwaythereepodcast.com slash 
uh, well, sorry, halfway there podcast.com and then hit the support button up at the top. Sometimes I'm still getting used to saying it. You know, I haven't done it a million times like I've done everything else. Of course, even the things that I have said a million times, uh, sometimes I still flub them, but that's just kind of life. So, um, anyway, if you want to support, um, halfway there, please reach out and do that on Patreon. Uh, again, $5 a month, you get that extra conversation. And then also, um, there's at the upper levels. So $25 or $50 a month, um, you'll get a free t-shirt. So if you want a t-shirt, um, you can do that as well. And the best way to do it, just go support us on Patreon and I'll get your information and send it out to you, uh, as soon as I possibly can. So Anyway, um, if you haven't, if you can't tell, uh, I've been really trying to get some stuff out there that, that would enable, um, something of value to come your way, but also help support the show. So I know that many of you download every week and I appreciate that. Um, but this has to become something in order for it to keep going that uh, does sort of pay for itself. And I tell you what, the last three years, (laughs) it really hasn't. Um, but we're getting, so anyway, we're getting there. And I'm trying a bunch of different things. If there's something you'd love to see, let me know. Uh, Okay, so that's all of the things I wanted to mention, except for one more. So today's guest is, he is a pastor. He is an author. And he's written this book that I just thought was so cool, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him. It's called The Wisdom of Your Heart. So we've talked to people before about your heart and why it matters and why you pay attention to emotions and things like that. Well, our guest is Mark Shelsky, the author of The Wisdom of Your Heart, and he has given us a couple of codes to download the audible version of his book. So if you want, like if you, I, I love audiobooks. Do you guys love audio too or else you wouldn't be listening to a podcast? You can get an audio version of The Wisdom of Your Heart and so I thought we'd just do a little contest. So here's what we'll do. If you go and look up Halfway There's Instagram page, so you just go, it's Instagram.com slash Halfway There Pod, um, or just search Halfway There Podcast in Instagram. I will post this episode uh, today early on Instagram as soon as I can, and you can um, like it. So what I want you to do is I want you to like it and comment on it. And if you'd like to follow Halfway There Podcast on Instagram, that'd be awesome too. So like it and comment. At least do those two things. And if you do those two things, I will put you in a drawing. And I have two codes that I can give away. Um, I'll put you in a drawing and then I'll reach out and give that uh, out to you. So we're going to go. We're gonna run this until I'm going to do it. Um, so this will come out on May 20th. And we will continue to go through, let's just go through the end of the week. That'll be May 24th. Okay. So we're going to do this on May 24th. I will choose a winner. So if you hear this anytime the week of May 20th, 2019 until May 24th, 2019, go out to Instagram, find the post for Mark Shelsky, and then like and comment on that. And that's how I'll know that you didn't just like it randomly. You commented on it to say that you, you know, then I'll know that you wanted to be in the drawing. Okay. And we'll give you, so you have a chance to win a, um, you know, a, um, audio version of the wisdom of your heart by our guest today, Mark Shelsky. 
Okay. So lots of things to take in there. Um, definitely, you know, reach out if you can. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Chelsky. Mark, welcome to Halfway There. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here with you. I am so grateful to make the acquaintance. I actually followed you on Twitter long before we ever connected personally. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a real privilege to have you here. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where God has you right now? Sure. Uh, let's see. I am uh, getting to be an old man, 48, something like that, if my math is correct. I uh, am a vocational pastor in Portland, Oregon, where I, um, I'm the teaching elder. That's my official position at a Little Church, Bridge City Community Church. I've been a part of that church for a long time now. I've gotten to see it through many different seasons and my own spiritual journey through many different seasons. Uh, I'm married since uh, 2000. So uh, if you can get married in the millennium year, it's really good for your anniversary math. It's very easy to know how long you've been married. So try that if you can. Um, <laughs> yeah, everybody and, uh, has to wait like 20 or 80 years now. <laughs> you can't do that to people, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've been married for 19 years. I've got uh, two kids, a um, girl that's uh, just about to turn 13 and a son who will be uh, 12 in the fall. And our life is very busy with, uh, with that, with their journey and all the things that they're involved in. And as you mentioned, I also um, share the things I'm learning and growing in out into the world online. Uh, I've been blogging for 10 years and um, have a podcast that has just started recently and uh, am into my second book that's out in the world. And all of that kind of surrounds my journey of growing uh, in the inner life, growing deeper in spiritual relationship with God, knowing ourselves, knowing who we really are, healing, uh, recovery, and uh, becoming the better people that God believes, dreams, calls us to be. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful topic and, and idea. Uh, this book is called The Wisdom of Your Heart, Discovering the God-Given Purpose and Power of Your Emotions, which is kind of a neglected aspect of being a human being in the church. I think that's true. I know that there are some churches that talk about this, but my my experience was that talking about emotions was really pretty well off limits. Uh, the church that I grew up in was very head-oriented, Bible study, theology, apologetics, um, knowing the right doctrine and being able to explain the right doctrine was really the most important thing. And in that faith community, uh, emotions were really looked uh, looked at askance. You know, uh, our worship services were not very emotional. We kind of looked down on our charismatic brothers and sisters uh, as maybe being a little less mature. Um, when people showed emotions publicly, there was kind of a time limit on what was acceptable, right? You know, you could cry in church for a little <laughs> bit. That's good. That shows some contrition maybe. But if you <laughs> cried too long, you know, then hmm, some, maybe something's wrong with you, you know? Yep. And, uh, and so that, that community that I grew up in, um, you know, really didn't make space for emotions as a part of our healthy journey. And as I began my own, um, 
uh, exploration of this, I discovered that a lot of people had that same experience in church. If churches talked about emotions at all, they talked about them in a negative light, right? Emotions are like a temptation. They can lead you astray. If you follow your emotions, you're always going to be doing something selfish. You're going to be leading yourself away from God's path. And so emotions were something to be afraid of. Yeah, which is not really, doesn't really do justice to being a human being because emotions right, are correct. part <laughs> of being a human being. So uh, interesting. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that because I'm sure that, that that sounds like one of those things that you learn the hard way, right? Things that you learn um, about yourself. I'm, I'm guessing you learned that uh, through some experiences. Right. Yeah. The pain of uh, life forces us into places of learning and growth if we're willing to go there. And that was certainly what happened to me. Okay. Um, you know, my life was chugging along. Um, well, well, all systems go. Yeah. Before you go there, I want to, let's go back and let's, I want to kind of lead up to it. Okay. So tell us about um, kind of where, where you grew up and kind of what faith was like in your, in your early years. Uh, my dad was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and at the time, the administrative uh, philosophy of that denomination was that pastors shouldn't be at churches very long. So if you had been at a church as a pastor for five years, that was a very long tenure, and pretty soon you would be moved on, and you would be moved on kind of on the basis of your of your skills. You know, if you'd been doing a good job, you'd be moved to a bigger church. If you had, you know, not been performing the way that they wanted you to perform, you'd probably be moved to a smaller, less influential church. And so it was pretty common that people were moved around a lot. And so, you know, when I was born, my dad was pastoring a three church district in Colorado. Um, and then uh, later on, we moved to a larger church district in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then um, by the time I was seven, we moved to uh church uh, district in um, Columbus, Ohio is a Worthington church. And um, that then my dad was there for quite a while uh, and uh, for the system. And then my dad uh, died unexpectedly in an accident when I was 11. So before my dad died, that childhood experience, uh, faith was a big part of our life. You know, my dad is a pastor. I'm a PK. So I'm at church events, you know, multiple times a week, Um, went to church schools, um, I, you know, participated every weekend in, you know, all of the kids stuff that you do and you learn the kids songs and you memorize the special verses that we select out for our children. And, and so faith was just the context of my life. It was the life I grew up in. It was my community. It was all of my friends. It was my school. And, um, you know, it was good. It was generally a positive, uh, cozy, a uh, warm place to grow up. I have great memories about um, growing up as a kid in that environment, but it also was um, very limited. I didn't really know much at all about life outside of that community, and I didn't know much, you know, in terms of Christianity. I didn't know much about uh, Christianity outside my faith community and theological tradition. And so growing up in that, like all kids, you know, you just, you grow up in the context that you grow up in and that's what you know. And one of the things that happened for me that I didn't really realize was what we talked about earlier, that this was a community that was very focused on um, head knowledge, very focused on um, theology and apologetics and scripture memorization. And, you know, you learn the books of the Bible, you know, memorize the books of the Bible in second or third grade. And, you know, you can, you can 
you can speak back, you know, key scripture passages like the Ten Commandments and and others uh, by memory, you know, and and so that was that was that was it, you know. I grew up in that community where learning learning about God, learning about scripture, articulating the faith, that was what we practiced. And I was good at that. I got a lot of affirmation for being the kind of student who could perform well at those tasks. Yeah, that's so interesting uh, because it's a good foundation, right? It's really, really good to have and to know a lot of those things, but it can sort of reinforce the value of just knowing rather than the value of being. Yeah, that's exactly right. We didn't talk about being. Uh, I think I think that the expectation was that you take this stuff in to who you are, and it just forms you. It just automatically forms you. And um, you know, I'm sure that there are people in that tradition that had different experiences. Um, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that my experience is my experience. It's the way I related to it. But for me, it was very much about what you know and how you perform. You know, that, that the way you demonstrate your faith is by being a good Christian, which meant uh, living up to the particular set of um, priorities and standards that our church held up, you know, and so in my church that, you know, that meant, you know, certain things, you know, there was certain standards of dress and certain standards of entertainment and certain standards of, of uh, interaction with your parents and, you know, you know, just all the, all the stuff you do to be a good Christian kid. And again, I got a lot of affirmation for that. You know, I was one of those kids who, uh, who got, you know, I was one of those kids who performed well in that kind of environment. And so, while I was growing and becoming a good Christian kid and learning all of this stuff, I was getting a lot of identity value from performing well at those things. Uh, It didn't necessarily mean that those things were uh, deeply a part of my inner life. That wasn't even a concept I was uh, conscious of, but um, I was performing and that performance was getting me credit. It was getting me affirmation in the community. It was uh, getting me lots of, you know, oh, your dad must be so proud of you, you know, (laughs) all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that feels good as a kid. And it also begins to shape your sense of identity of how you're going to make it in the world and who you are. Yeah, that I was wondering about that because it, you know, especially as a pastor's kid, that really can get mess with your head, can it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, everything that you do is up for uh, uh, up for critical debate by the whole community. You know, that's a that's a hard place to grow up if you are, um, you know, especially if you're a kid that's making a lot of mistakes. You know, for me, being a kid that was able to perform well. Um, felt okay. You know, it didn't, it didn't feel negative. I'm not one of those PKs who had kind of the black sheep experience, uh, because my personal wiring and personality, um, I was able to perform well, but I didn't really realize that what was happening behind that was that my sense of identity was getting linked up with my ability to perform. I didn't realize that until much later in my life when crisis happened and I wasn't able to perform and it felt like my identity fell apart. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Okay. So your dad dies yeah, and it sounds like things changed after that. Quite a bit. Yeah. My, I was 11. Um, and, uh, my dad, you know, it was a Sunday morning uh, as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, of course, uh, we, uh, worshiped on Saturday. And so Sunday was the day off. And so on Sunday morning, um, that day we were going to go to the state fair and, uh, before the rest of the family got up, my dad got up and headed over to the office to kind of get caught up on the never ending pile of work. 
And uh, he would spend a couple hours there and then come back and meet up with us when we'd all gotten up and had breakfast and we'd go to the fair to, uh, fair together. And uh, one of the things that he wanted to do is he wanted to wash the windows of his office. And so he got out a ladder, climbed up to a second floor office window. And while he was up there washing the windows, a church member came by and greeted him and he turned around and fell off the ladder. And um, a traumatic uh, brain injury when he hit the ground and um, was dead you know, not even an hour later in the hospital. Oh man. So that's, that's obviously changes your entire family. It changed everything. You know, I mean, first, first off, it's just the trauma of that loss that anyone would experience. You know, when you're a young kid and your parent uh, dies, that's a terrible trauma. When you're a boy and your dad dies, that's a, a loss, a particular kind of loss that's deep. But because of the kind of community we were a part of, I didn't realize this until looking back when I was doing some of my own work on healing and growing from some of the trauma. Uh, we lost our place, right? Before this, we were the pastor's family in a community where being the pastor's family meant something, right? It meant that we were always at the center of things. We were always in the we were always at the events. We were always invited to participate in whatever was happening in the community. We got special treatment. Um, honestly, because of that status. Right. And so then when my dad died, all of a sudden we weren't that anymore. And, you know, mm-hmm. we lived in the, we, we lived in the parsonage. Well, what right. does that mean when your dad's the pastor and, and you live in the parsonage, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, well, your housing is up for grabs. Um, our income was my dad's salary. Your income is up for grabs. Our education was at the church school, which was paid for by subsidy because we were uh, the pastor's kids. So our education is up for grabs. Our entire circle of friends uh, are all the people that we hang out with at church. And so what's our role in church going to be and which of those relationships are going to continue? So our entire network of relationship is up for grabs. And so, you know, it was, it was devastating. You know, uh, my mom uh, went into a, de- a place of deep grief um, and, uh, and pain. Um, my, our, you know, our family, you know, was basically displaced and I became the one who held stuff together. Um, you know, as an 11 year old kid, I had a younger sister, um, four years younger than me. And, um, I was the one who was cooking dinner at night and walking her and I to school in the morning and getting us back at night and making sure that, that we could eat and that the house was clean and, and all of that, you know, that was, that was the, the, the role that I stepped into. And that meant that I wasn't present to my grief, really. Mm. Um, it meant that I was you know, that I, I was not experiencing my loss in the way that I needed to. And that began a pattern in my life. Um, if, if, uh, if you knew me as an adult, you know, you would think of me as someone whose you know, head was screwed on straight and, and didn't go crazy in a crisis and could help think through, uh, difficult situations and always wanted to make sure that everybody was okay. And, you know, all of that stuff ended up being a great leadership asset as a pastor, because then I can help the community be safe. I can help plan events so that everyone's included. I can uh, kind of sense when things are heading off the rails and and it's going to be scary or dangerous, and maybe we can make some adjustments to avoid that. But that all stems back to that initial traumatic experience where I basically, you know, over uh, was over-responsible 
right? It's not an 11-year-old's job to manage the family. It's not an 11-year-old's job to take care of um, his his mom and his sister. It's not an 11-year-old's job to have a stiff upper lip when his dad dies, but that's the role I stepped into. And then that became a pattern that I played out over and over and over in my life. So you basically decided um, probably unconsciously that, okay, I can perform my way through this. You know, I'd never put those words on it before you said it right now, but sure, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I did the work that needed to be done and and got that, you know, again, you know, people would pat me on the back and go, oh, you're so mature. Your mom must be so proud of you. You're really handling this well. You know, I'm so proud of you for, you know, being such a man in the situation. You know, that kind of language was affirmation. That kind of language was encouraging and it was life-giving. Um to my heart in that situation. Yeah. And I encourage you to kind of keep going in that path. Right. As the, sure. It reinforced what you were doing. So, okay. How was your, how, how was your faith handling all of that? So maybe you weren't aware of it then, but looking back at it, how do you, you know, you losing your dad, like you said, is a big deal for a, a boy, but then that can maybe change your view of God in some ways. So did, can you see how that, Sure. you know, I, I think that, it was a much, it was a long, long time before uh, that trauma began to impact my, my life of faith. And part of that was because so much of my life of faith growing up was head stuff. Uh, and so, you know, my dad dying didn't change the mm. theology I'd been taught or yeah. the scripture I'd memorized. And, and so those things were, were in place. You know, I believed in God. I believed that God loved me. I, you know, I, had accepted Jesus into my heart, you know, all that, all that stuff that was still there. And I didn't really have a lot of expressed anger, uh, partly because expressed anger was one of those things that would be not performing right in that community, you know, to express, you know, deep emotional, you know, kind of overwhelm or being angry at God or whatever that, you know, that was not an okay thing. You know, people who were angry at God, those were, those were sinners. Those were people that, (laughs) that were off track and, you know, they were going to have consequences in their life. And so probably, you know, just as a function of living in this performance environment, um, that was just, that just wasn't even an option for me. It wasn't even a conscious thing. I just wasn't aware of, of that level of grief or anger. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't there, Right, stuff was happening in my life that was an expression of anger, but I, but I didn't know that's what it was. You know, I'm 11, I'm 12, I'm 13, and during those years, you know, I, you know, I was mean to my sister far above and beyond what's appropriate for you know sibling rivalry. Um, you know, there were some times when I got destructive with, uh, you know, things in our house. There were, there were things that were happening that were anger trying to come out, mm. but it was something I was completely unconscious to, you know, I mean, there was even, there was even one uh, season where my mom, um, felt like things were serious enough that she arranged for me to see a therapist and, I didn't know why I would see a therapist. It didn't make any sense why my mom wanted me to see a therapist. Um, you know, he asked me dumb questions that I wasn't interested in. And, you know, we ended up just playing risk, you know, he and I <laughs> for uh, several months, <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and so I don't know what he got out of that. I don't recall anything therapeutic happening. Um, but I just, it wasn't, you know, that, that, that aspect of being aware of your inner life and what's going on 
uh, with you, that was not a part of my life at all. I, you know, I had other things I wanted to be doing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So take us forward when you, you know, really start learning scriptures, when you decide that you're called to ministry, what was, what was that like? Well, that was a little unexpected. You know, I grew up in this environment where ministry was central to our lives. Uh, When my dad died and our family was displaced, part of that being displaced was that we were far less involved in church. Um, My sister and I, you know, my mom still made sure that we went to church school and we still went to church and mom went to church often, but she was more and more distant from church. And, And there were some things that happened in that season that I never knew until many, many years later that were very hurtful to her that, that it happened in the community about the time my dad died. And so I didn't know that my mom had her own trauma around the church and her own experience of, of being a feeling rejected. I didn't know about that. But what I did experience was that church just wasn't as urgent for our family as it had been, you know, and every now and then there were times and other things came up and it was okay to not go to church. And, and, um, you know, we, we just kind of grew more distant in it. You know, I was involved in youth group and, and things like that, but it was never, it was not nearly as much of a priority as it had been before. And um, I was on track to do other things with my life. You know, I was in high school, as I was in high school, um, I kind of got my eye on uh, the idea of being an architect. I was taking art classes and took drafting, you know, back in the olden days when you drafted with pencils and straight edges, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, really loved that and began looking at programs that I could attend, uh, got accepted to a program at the University of Cincinnati and was kind of all headed in that direction. You know, I went to the University of Cincinnati to the architecture program there for two years. And uh, during the second year, had a completely unexpected experience where I felt very profoundly that what I was focusing on was not meaningful enough and wasn't valuable enough. It wasn't a valuable enough way to spend my life that just building buildings or homes that people were going to live in and go about their day. It was cool. It was interesting, but it didn't have that heart to it that I wanted to be a part of something more meaningful. And I didn't know what that meant, but at that time um, I was really stressed. The program was very challenging. And so I felt like I needed to do something that was not architecture and so uh, I still had some loose connections to the church that I, that I had been going to before this and to the youth pastor there. And so I said, hey, can I, you know, can I help out? And so I started volunteering in youth ministry at that church uh, on the weekends. And it wasn't very long uh, until I came to the realization that the work I was doing on the weekends, volunteering in ministry, was more engaging and more meaningful and more fulfilling to me than what I was doing in my architecture program. And um, that was um, a difficult thing to get my head around because this this plan of being an architect was several years in the making, and I was fully invested in it. And so the idea that you know here two years down this road I was going to do something different was kind of terrifying. Um, and so I you know I I set up set aside a time to do some. I guess I would call it discernment now. That's not really a word that I would have thought of then. Sure. But to try and figure out what was going on with myself. And during that time, I, you know, I really focused on 
uh, spiritual things and scripture and reflecting and praying and journaling. And I also read uh, during that season, I uh, read um, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. And that book um, completely wrecked me. Uh, to get to the end of that book and to realize that not only was this the most compelling presentation of discipleship that I'd ever experienced, but that the guy who was saying these things had meant it so seriously that he lost his life over his (laughs) conviction uh, to live as a follower of Jesus. Uh, That was just so compelling to me. And what I, when I looked at the path of my future and I saw, you know, the, the predictable career path in architecture um, and what that would look like in my life. And I saw what I was doing on the weekends in ministry with the students. And I, I just, and that I just felt like I can't, I cannot spend the, whatever time I have in this life, I can't, I just can't spend it building stuff. That's all going to be meaningless one day, right? It's all just going to fade away those lives, the kids I'm interacting with, you know, that stuff matters forever. And, and so that was really my experience of, of ministry calling. And, um, I wrote a big long letter to my mom explaining what I had come to. Um, and then we had a big difficult conversation because she, with her experiences was terrified about the idea of me going into ministry. Um, I had no picture of the church outside of the community I grew up in. And so going into ministry for me meant going to one of three schools in the country, because those were the schools that the denomination I was a part of had. And that's what that meant. And so I began that path and I had no idea exactly what it would look like, but it ultimately ended up in, in, uh, me, uh, ending in the Pacific Northwest at a school in Southeast Washington, Walla Walla University. Um, it ended up in me, you know, continuing to work in, in student ministry at some schools and then eventually taking a position in, at a, a church uh, in Portland. And I've been in ministry here in Portland ever since. Wow. Okay. So that's how you ended up in there. So you were really looking for meaning, something, something valuable that would last. Yeah. Yeah, it, me, meaning something valuable that would last. Something that um, I think I think part of it, maybe a shadow part of it, was significance. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that ties into my performance drive. You know, that if I can do something really significant, then I'm really performing well. I think part of it was that, but I also I've always had a compelling desire to uh, to be of of. Um, to be a part of helping people, to well, helping people, helping people uh, have better lives, helping people understand God better. My, you know, all along in my ministry, from the earliest days of my most naive youth ministry, um, all along, my my heart's desire was to help people see past things that were limiting them or bringing them, you know, into a, a lack of freedom. That were uh, pictures of God that were. Um, that were scaring them or that were putting them into a place of legalism or a place of uh, feeling like their value is based on performance, like helping people find freedom uh, in the gospel. That was something that just, it just felt so meaningful to me, probably because it's, it's what I needed. And, and, uh, and so that, you know, that kind of began the trajectory of my Mm -hmm. ministry. Yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. So were you, 
kind of searching that for yourself? Because were you still sort of having this um, knowing, doing kind of perspective achieving or were you, and you were kind of looking back at it, trying to find that freedom in the gospel? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hmm. I mean, I think my journey, my spiritual growth journey has all along been a journey of, you know, first off, you know, you start with reactivity, right? So, so starting off with a a high level of kind of uh, freedom in the gospel versus legalism, that was the core for me for a while. And then after you get through your reactivity, then you begin to come to a place where you can kind of see that, you know, some of those things that I would call legalism, they weren't legalism. They were useful practices that are meaningful and can be, uh, you know, constructive in your spiritual growth. But what would make them legalism is the heart, the intention of the heart or the sense of value coming from that rather than letting those be vessels or tools in the process of growth. And so then coming to a place that was more balanced and then even moving beyond that to where, you know, I, I, I'm in a place spiritually right now where, um, the idea that I, that whether or not I can see it, whether or not I can feel it, whether or not I even have practices that reflect it, the fact is that I'm held in the hand of, of God in this one present moment. You know, Jesus said in, in John 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And if Jesus was telling the truth, what Jesus meant was that we have right now in Christ this intimate connection that is present before the Father, that Jesus is with us through the Spirit right now in this moment. And that's a completely different uh, space of relating to my life than my childhood religion, which was about... Um, you do the right things, you know the right things, and if you do all of that correctly, then you get in. Um, I'm in a much different place. I'm in a place where my confidence in my belonging is settled, and now I'm learning what it means to look at my life moment by moment in light of the presence of Christ in and with me. Wow, that's really powerful. I'm in a place where my belonging is settled. I like that. Um, It's been a long, it has been a long and painful journey coming there um, because belonging has been a key, a key question in my story. Um, But uh, that's where my spiritual life is now. Yeah. And so, okay. So that's powerful. So I know that you were in ministry for, for some number of years and then it kind of hit the fan. You started to talk about that a little bit. So you started to go through some, was it depression and burnout? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, in this story, you know, I've been in vocational ministry since, um, Oh, uh, 1995, not counting every summer prior to that, since I was 16 working at Christian summer camps. So, (laughs) um, you know, ministry and professional ministry has been a part of my life for a long time. And so I became a part of this uh, church plant, um, Bridge City Community Church, uh, uh, where I presently am. Um, I became a part of that uh, a little over 20 years ago and, uh, you know, came in as a youth pastor. And eventually um, my gifts were such that I was invited to be the administrator. Um, I did worship ministry for a while, you know, kind of had my hand on different roles over the years. And then um, after uh, some transition in the church, um, was asked to be the senior pastor. And um, that uh, was unexpected to me. Um, but, uh, you know, I was there, I understood the culture. I had a picture in my head of what I thought healthy church should look like. We had a great ministry team, you know, that I was a part of and that I loved and, uh, people were very supportive and encouraging. And when I thought about it and prayed about it, I didn't have any sense that 
that this wasn't something I should do. And so, you know, when they extended the invitation to me, uh, I became senior pastor. And I think that pro- that probably happened too early uh, in my mm. in my spiritual development. I think that um, I still had some work to do in my own maturing, but I didn't. I didn't know that. You know, you are where you are, and so I dove in, and and um, all that old performance stuff really came to the front again. Because now, as senior pastor, I'm responsible that everything works. I'm responsible that everything goes well. I'm responsible that everyone who comes to our worship services has a wonderful experience, and they right. want to come back. And so, you know, I I really had my hand in all of all the fires, you know, all the committees, all the ministry teams, uh, being a part of deciding how things were going to go, what it was going to look like, debriefing it on the other side. How can we improve this? How can we do better? Um, and then, of course, on top of that, pastoral care and and being with people and meeting with them and counseling. And then I'm preaching, um, you know, probably 80% of the time. And um, for a season there, it was uh, multiple services a week. And so I'm doing all of that, right? And that's all in line of my calling. This is all, you know, what God has sent my way and just digging deeply into it and not conscious at all that I am not taking care of some very important things. I'm not taking care of my relationship with my wife. Um, uh, why uh, on earth, you know, would would I do that when I have this God-given ministry right in front of me that requires all of my effort? You know, so when my wife would express disappointment or sadness or or want me to be more present to her, I, I was a little bit defensive because it was always this, well, you know, I've, how, how can you say that you see my ministry? Like you see this thing God's called me to. And, and you use that language, this thing God's called me to, why that, that is language that doesn't allow argument, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sort of shutting things down. You're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God, right? You know, yep. so, um, you know, so that, that was not good. And I began, you know, I was living on credit in relationship with my wife. And then during that season, we had our first child and then um, uh, began the process to adopt our son. And that all went way faster than we expected it to. And so sooner than we thought, sooner probably than we were prepared, we had a second child. And I'm still, you know, living with the, with the gas pedal floored, you know, the, the red line is just, it's just not, everything is in the red. And I could not, I could not meet all the expectations. I had this story in my head of what a good dad looked like. And I was wanting to live up to that. I had this story in my head of what a good uh, husband was like. And I was trying to live up to that, although I was in a lot of denial about what that really meant. And I was trying to live up to the expectation of what a good pastor is Mm. in this community. And just all of it, it was, it was just all more than I could do. And so plates started dropping and, um, I did not have the, um, experience or wisdom, uh, to be able to do the level of delegation that I should have done. I thought I was delegating. Um, I thought I was mentoring and I was with some people, but my hand was still involved, right? I was still, you know, you go all the way back to the beginning of my story when my dad died and I stepped into that role of being the person who made sure everything was okay. Bring that back into my life as an adult, being the senior pastor of this church, I have to be involved in everything to make sure everything's going to be okay, right? I can't allow a negative outcome because a negative outcome um, would be Mm. bad. You know, I could justify that and say it would be bad for church members. But the truth uh, is that if I'm living out of this performance mindset where my value and my belonging is predicated on my performance, then if it goes bad, it's also bad for me. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about that for me is 
at the same time, not only is it causing you a whole bunch of unnecessary stress, you're really robbing the body of a chance to use their gifts and to, um, you know, kind of develop those kinds of things, right? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, robbing is, is gentle. You know, I think that in in some ways you could argue that that behavior uh, infantilized them. You know, oh. that it actually set up an expectation that we have people who will do these things for you. Your job is to just show up and and experience yeah. what we make. You know, and I, that happens uh, though. This is so sorry. This is just a little bit of a tangent, but that happens in churches all over the place, right? I think it's a huge problem in the American church. Yeah. It, it keeps, that's a good word, infantilized. It keeps people spiritually mature because they don't have to take the steps, take the risks, learn through failure. Um, right. Well, failure yeah. is the only way we learn. I know. Right. That is the only way we learn. And so when you think about Christian discipleship and you think about the different aspects of what we want, how we want people to grow, right? Well, to learn theology, you have to have the freedom to express your theology poorly or wrongly. Like right. you have to be able to talk about it and and question it. And maybe the way you talk about it is wrong. And instead of getting spanked for that, you need to be engaged in it, right? To learn to study scripture, you need to be able to do it and mess up, right? You need to do bad exegesis so that people can say, hey, we'll try this. Here, do you see how this works, right? To, to learn to grow in your relationships, to grow in your moral behavior, to grow, like in all these aspects, we grow by messing up. And a lot of pastors, and this is where I was, you know, don't leave space for that. You know, like I, one, one instance that I'll share a a kind of a silly example, um, you know, we had an associate pastor um, at one point that, um, kind of in his portfolio was uh, some of our uh, kind of social ministry activities. And and we were doing a regular uh, potluck at that time as a church, as an opportunity for people to get together. And when he took over responsibility for planning that, um, what he did <laughs> was uh, – was um, basically very little. Um, he, you know, he didn't have this whole big committee that was playing the potluck and all these people who were going to set up. He did very little. And so when people showed up for the first potluck, there was a lot of work to do. And a bunch of people jumped in and helped get everything set up. And there was a wonderful potluck. Well, I was sort of mortified that he hadn't done all of this work ahead of time to make it beautiful and to get it all set up so that everything would be smooth because that was my expectation. Well, my expectation had resulted prior to that in potlucks ending up being this really kind of uh, staid, highly controlled, uh, uh, sort of scripted thing, which is, you know, looking back, hilarious and dumb. <laughs> and, and he, you know, he had created a potluck where people came in and there was this buzz of energy as everyone was helping out, right? That's a very tiny thing. Like potluck is such a tiny trivial thing overall in the big picture, but that's a, that's a picture of what was happening. Like I was, I was living in a place where I felt like the importance of everything being just right. That was so high that I wasn't willing to create space for people to, uh, to, to not do well. You know, when I was worship pastor, um, I, I, uh, have been a musician, you know, most of my life. I love, uh, I love performing and I love playing music with folks. And I was worship pastor for uh, probably 10 years. And, and so when I would set up the band and we'd have a new musician come, I always wanted to set up the band for that new musician in such a way that they'd have a really amazing experience. Right. So let's say we have a new electric guitarist that's coming. Well, I set up the whole ensemble so that it's going to be great. Uh, this new guitarist comes in and plays with the band. 
And the experience that they had was the opposite of what I wanted. I wanted them to have the experience of, man, that was amazing. It was, we made such incredible music. Everything worked well. It was so much fun being a part of something so excellent, uh, which is a word that we hear in church a lot, uh, <laughs> being a part of something that was so excellent, man, I want to be involved. What really happened was they came and they played. And at the end, they're like, you know, I could have turned my guitar off and it wouldn't have mattered at all. Wow. Everything was done. There was no place for me to invest creativity. So I don't, you don't need me. And, and that, that type of experience, you know, happened over and over again, but I was just not conscious to how this was impacting the body. So how did you then, so how did that kind of hit the, hit the wall? How'd you hit the wall? Well, living like that is not sustainable. Right. And I, you know, was living on credit in relationship to my family, in relationship to my spiritual life, uh, in relationship to some of my leaders. And I got to the point where I was not able to do it all and plates started dropping. And when plates started dropping, that wasn't something that I had a lot of experience with in the past. And so I didn't handle it well. And in very short order, uh, what's, what, what happened was that the reality that my sense of identity was based on performance um, pulled the rug out from under me because as soon as I was in a place where I couldn't perform, I didn't have the capacity to give myself grace. I didn't have the capacity to receive grace from other people. I just felt like a failure. And the more I felt like a failure, the more deeply I fell into this place of, of, uh, of, well, it ended up being depression because I, I could not do what I needed to do to feel okay about myself. And, you know, so we've got two kids and life is full and life is busy. And, you know, I'm either going to tell my wife, no, I'm not going to help you because I have my important ministry to do, or I'm going to tell you, tell her I'm going to help you and I'm going to fail at the ministry. Like I felt every day, like I was failing on some front, right? I would be at church in my office, not doing enough. And I believe feeling like a failure as a pastor, I'd get home and I'd open the door and my wife's tired face would greet me. And I was probably an hour or two later than I promised I'd get home. And I felt like a failure as a husband and I'm short tempered now. And so my kids are frustrating and then I get angry and blow my top with my kids. And I feel like a failure as a dad. And so every part of my life, I felt like a failure and because the only vehicle I had to that point for a sense of identity and security was my performance. It just all completely mm. fell apart. And, and so I ended up in this season, probably about six months where I, um, you know, I, I start working really hard on Wednesday to get things ready for the weekend, you know, planning and getting stuff out to group leaders and writing my sermon and preparing that and getting everything ready so that the weekend service would be an amazing experience. Um, I'd put in a, super long double shift day at church, um, you know, be the last one to lock the door, get home, uh, drag myself into bed and not get out of bed till Wednesday and, uh, do that over and over again every week for months. And nobody except my wife, uh, knew that that was what was happening with me. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother problem that we don't have time to solve right now. But I think so many pastors struggle with that kind of isolation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just a hard place to be. Um, okay, so what what changed? Like, how did you how did you finally realize? Oh, I got to do something about this. Well, I knew I had to do something about it. Um, you know, I felt awful about myself and I wanted things to be different. And even my performance drive sort of gave me a viewpoint of what 
a healthy life would look like, right? I know that this way I'm living right now isn't good. And I could see, you know, all the things that mattered to me heading off the cliff. I could see my marriage failing. I could see my relationship with my kids being destroyed. I could see losing my ministry. And of course, tie back to my childhood when my dad died and we lost our place in the community, we lost our entire life. And so if you reimport that story into this moment, the idea there was no there was no way for me to envision a restorative process. I could not envision the church saying, Mark, we love you. Let's let's help you walk through this in healing. Let's reduce some of your responsibilities. Like I had no narrative for how that could happen. The only story I could imagine was I'm failing and they're going to see that I'm failing and they're going to fire me and I'm going to lose everything. Mm, which yeah. given I, what happened to you when your dad died, it totally makes sense, right? Yeah. That was the yeah, reality of, of what happened in our life. Right. Why wouldn't it happen that way again? Right. Okay. So go ahead. So then what, how did, how did that change? Well, um, I, I think it changed because, um, God was gracious and I had some people who cared about me more deeply than I understood. Um, I had a couple friends in particular that I was close to, uh, both were men who, um, were either pastors or had experience as, as pastors. And both were men who had done a lot of their own work dealing with trauma, personal trauma. Mm. Um, both of them had been in counseling for years. Both of them had dealt with serious brokenness. And because of their experience, I believe they could sort of see through my BS. You know, they could see the truth of what was happening for me and um, were willing to kind of push into that space, you know? So, uh, one of them was really pretty harsh with me, and one of them was very compassionate. They were kind of good cop, bad cop. And um, were they working it, together? It, uh, what were they working together? Uh, not on purpose at first. You know, mm. I was meeting with them individually, just as friends. And then as things developed, you know, there was some conversation between all of us. Um, they were all, they were definitely working on the same project, though. You know, and the, uh -huh. and the project was: Can Mark see what's going on, and is Mark capable? of receiving help. And, uh, you know, I had one of them say to me, Mark, this is not just, this is not just a life hack that you're looking at here. This isn't something where you need to adjust your schedule and take on a new, a couple new practices and delegate a couple things. This is a life and death decision. This is everything in your world and you can't solve this by yourself. And, and that was terrifying because solving things by myself, that's my skill set. <laughs> yeah. That is what I've done my whole life, you know? And, and so the idea that, that I couldn't, that I didn't have the tools in my backpack to solve this, that was, that was terrifying because if I don't have the tools then I'm going to fail, right? I can't asking for help is the opposite of performing. And, um, so that was, that was really scary, but because these guys loved me and because they saw the truth of what was going on with me and still loved me, that was sort of mortifying to be known in that way, but also then to have them continue to care for me. That opened up the door for me to begin speaking honestly with them about my experience. And so through those two guys, I began a journey. You know, one of them arranged for me to attend a retreat uh, for pastors experiencing burnout. And that retreat was a watershed moment for me. I learned a ton about myself and my story and what was going on and got a whole, a whole bunch of new language and tools. And that also pushed me over the edge 
of realizing that I this is this was job one for me. Attending to what was happening in my inner life was the single most important thing, and everything else would follow or or not. Right? Like if I was going to stay mm-hmm. in ministry, if I was going to stay married, if I was going to have a good relationship with my kids, those things would happen based on whether I took care of my inner life or not. And um, so that was a significant moment. And then the other friend uh, got me into therapy. Um, He was a therapist. And so he, uh, in our relationship, he didn't counsel me because our relationship mattered to both of us. And that wasn't a good, you know, that's not a good boundary. You don't, you're not a therapist to your friends, but he got me connected to an excellent therapist and helped facilitate making that happen. And that, you know, I was, I was, in their therapy for between four and five years. And that was life-changing, you know, to have a place, which I'd never had in my life. I had never had a place where I could speak without the concern that my words were being measured as an indication of my performance or my holiness or my competence. Um, I'd, I'd never had that in my life ever. And so to have a place where I could tell the truth, uh, it was some, it was completely a brand new thing for me. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's kind of an astounding statement, right? To say I've never had a place, I never had a place where I could feel like I wasn't being judged basically. Yeah. Right. Wow. That takes a toll, doesn't it? It does. You don't, I don't think you even realize when you're living in it, how much of a toll it takes. Yeah. Because if that's the world you live in, then everything is moderated through that filter everything, you know? And, and so it was even in some ways, I didn't realize that that was happening. Like it it required the therapist helping me kind of, she did a great job being a mirror for me to help me see what I was actually doing. And when I would say, you know, I'm the kind of person who does this, she would point me out to several circumstances in my life and go, Oh, is that what you did here? And all of a sudden (laughs) I would see, Oh no, this story I have had about who I am as a person is not true. Like I am not that person, right? I am something different. Well, what am I? Oh, wow. you know, and that was a deconstruction that, that was brutal. It was painful, but it was also the only way forward. It was the only way to being able to be uh, a whole person who could live peacefully uh, with himself and with others. Yeah. Do, so that sounds like a really kind of transformational moment when you kind of come face to face with your stories and go, Oh, that's not what I thought I yeah. I was doing. Yeah. yeah. So on the other side, like how, how did you, you know, how did you, where did that go? I guess is my question. Well, the, the church was uh, more deeply graceful and loving than I expected them to be, or that I deserved um, the church uh, came around me, very supportive, um, gave me uh, a sabbatical. Actually, I ended up having two sabbaticals over a period of years. Um, uh, one of the things that the church did, which shocked me when I came back kind of in this place where I'd had some of these realizations and I'd been in therapy and I came to the leadership and I said, I, it's very clear to me that my role has to change here. And I don't know what that means, but I know that the way that I've been leading up until this point is not healthy for me. And I suspect it's not healthy for the church. And I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I'm putting that in your hands, right? Well, you know, they could just very easily have said, great, thank you for your two weeks notice and we'll find somebody (laughs) else. And they didn't do that. Um, One of the things that they did, they did a number of things, but one of the things that they did was they said, well, we need to look at our leadership expectations to determine if we're a part of the problem. Wow. 
did we in some way contribute to this? And that just, I just never expected that. Dude, and that led to that. That uh, is so humble on their part. That there's not a lot of people who have boards like that. No, that's no, amazing. Not at all. Because that moment of saying I'm not doing well, that's the moment. That's your job. That's your job performance, right? Yeah, like you, you're failing in your job. Well, but but churches aren't a corporation. Churches are a system. They're much more like a family system than they are like a corporation. And we all impact each other. And so for them to say, you know, how did we play a role in this, I think was really insightful. And that led to about a six-month-long process where the uh, a team of leaders studied um, our leadership and leadership in scripture and a variety of other models of leadership. And the fruit of that was that the church changed the bylaws. Like we had been led, we had been a senior pastor led church where a senior pastor oversaw staff and uh, there was a board, a board, like a nonprofit board, a board of directors that provided uh, oversight. And um, they ditched that and we became a church led by a plurality of elders. And um, when we made the transition, when we made the transition to the eldership, there was no guarantee that any pastor, any current staff member would be grandfathered in as an elder, that it was actually an open question put before the church where there was a process that was developed for the church to pray and articulate who do we believe in our community? Who are the people who are functioning as elders or as near elders right now? And they could have said no to any of us on staff. And, you know, there was a big transition in that time. We had, a, you know, we had somebody leave and we had a, a we had somebody, a staff member say no to being an elder, and that eventually resulted in them leaving a while later. And um, so we went through that process, and um, the end result of it is that I am one of a team of elders. We're co-equal in authority. Um, I My particular pro, uh, portfolio includes being the primary teacher, which is uh, – you know, plays into my, my gifts. I do other things, but that's my primary responsibility. And it's the healthiest church leadership I've ever experienced because what we do, we do together. We pray about it together. We make a decision together. Um, we can argue and debate and discuss things when we're in our meeting, but then when a decision is made, it's, it is our shared decision and we function, you know, everybody that there's nobody on the board there's nobody on the board that's an advisor. Everyone that's an elder is being an elder in the church. They're, you know, they're they're pastoring, they're shepherding, I guess is a better word there because we're not really using the word pastor anymore. So they're shepherding people directly or they're counseling people or they're teaching in one capacity or another. Um, they're involved in the health of the body and the life of the body. They're not just coming to a once a month meeting to share their opinions about what the church should be doing. And uh, that change was massive for me, uh, relieved an enormous pressure I was carrying where, um, I was the linchpin, you know, in the previous system, I was the leader of the staff. I was the, the link between the staff and the board. And I was a member of the board, you know? And so I was in this weird position where I was, you know, responsible to the board and responsible for the staff and responsible to myself. And yep. who was I reporting to? Well, as a member of the elder team, we're reporting to each other. Um, I'm accountable to them. They're accountable to me. And, you know, we pray and act together. And it's it's really changed the nature of our church significantly. Yeah. C can you give us like one or two tangible ways that it's changed your church? Sure. Um, uh, I Well, first off, we've 
it's taken several years, but we've broken the expectation that was built over many, many years that Mark is the buck stopper, that Mark's the one who makes the decision that if we're going to do a ministry around here, it's because Mark thinks it's the right thing to do. Um, that that's a huge change. You know, people are now able to make suggestions and ministry suggestions and own ministry in ways that they weren't before. Um, we, uh, have, you know, in the teaching, um, all the elders have a say in what the direction of our teaching, you know, in the, in the old system, I would go up to the mountain for a weekend and I would plan the teaching schedule for the next year and come up with the series and what, you know, what I felt kind of in my heart, God was leading the, the direction of the teaching. And I would come down and do that. And that was my business. I was the vision caster. Right. Um, well, that's not what happens now. What happens now is we get together and we say, where are we at? What are we sensing God's doing in the body? What are you hearing when you're talking to people? What would be, uh, what we're praying over, you know, what would be the next right thing? And then we do that. And I, I teach mostly, but other people teach too. So there's more viewpoints, there's more voices being shared. Um, and, uh, and so that's a significant change. And, and we've changed in other ways. You know, I mean, the way we do church, we're a completely different church than we used to be. The way we do church is, is, so different. And in some ways, um, uh, it's funny because a lot of the expectations that I had about what church is supposed to look like and, and what it means for me to perform well as a pastor, like we're just not doing that stuff at all. <laughs> like we're really, we're messy and we don't start on time and we're smaller than we've ever been. And our services, the time that people come together is super long. And like all these things that church growth people would tell you, don't do this. This is not how you grow a church. And yet what's happening is that I'm seeing real life change in people's life lives, people becoming better humans, people having significant experiences of God working um, in ways that I did never see before. Yeah, that is incredible. I really love it. Okay. So I want to want you to connect all of this because I have, I have a feeling that it's all connected uh, to your book, The Wisdom of Your Heart. Right. So you know, my story leading to this point uh, was a story of me being very disconnected, uh, being very disconnected from what was going on inside of me. Uh, I was not conscious of the way that emotions were working in me. The only emotion I could really articulate was anger. And that was difficult because a good Christian man's not supposed to be angry. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, that was, that was where I was at and it led to a lot of brokenness in myself and others. And so then I go through with this long journey, counseling, lots of journaling, lots of, uh, lots of, soul searching, lots of counsel and, and, you know, several years long process, um, and still in some ways ongoing yet. And I began to share some of the things that I was learning with people. I wrote a series of blog posts about what I was learning about emotions and it was very well responded to. Uh, I did, uh, one teaching series and, and people responded so well to it not just well, like, oh, I like that, but, but responded like, I've never heard this in church before. Right. This is really important. I need to know, I need to understand this more. This, this is, feels like it's opening up new things for me that are really important. And that led to another teaching series where we, where we talked about some of the, some of the things, the expectations or myth, myths that we grew up in church. So I, I was sharing the things that I was learning uh, with oh, the right. church, and I had come to a point of conviction because of all of the brokenness I'd experienced. I'd come to a point of conviction where I felt like if these people are still going to allow me to teach, 
the only credibility I have is to be completely honest about my personal experience. Um, I cannot get up here and just sort of preach a glossed over sermon that cites some Bible verses and touts hope for people and have that be disconnected from what I'm actually experiencing in my life. I have to tell the truth. And so where I was at for a long time meant talking about brokenness. It meant talking about fear that I was feeling and anxiety and emotional overwhelm because, you know, for so long I hadn't been feeling much of anything. And then as I began to learn how to connect to my feelings in therapy, there was a lot of gross feelings to feel that had (laughs) backed up that were not dealt with. And so all of a sudden, you know, now that I can feel, oh, there was a reason why I was disconnected from this stuff, you know, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stuff in here that I, I don't like. You know, and so I tried hard not to, you know, do my therapy in front of the congregation, but I was also honest about where I was. And that was a new thing, you know, yeah. and some people did not like it. That was not what they came to church for. They wanted hope and encouragement, and they didn't want to hear about me not being strong. And then other people, uh, their response was exactly the opposite. They they were saying, I have never in my life heard a spiritual leader talk about being weak. I've never heard a pastor talk about failing. I've never heard anyone bring scripture to light on, on being in a place of brokenness. Did it give them permission to do so as well? That's exactly what happened. You know, we, we got real messy, real fast. Um, because obviously the people who were resonating with that were people who had brokenness in their lives. And if I was telling the truth, they could tell the truth. And so they did. And the church got messy and we came to realize that part of that whole glossy church experience that we had constructed was happening at the expense of people's authentic experience. Right. And I think that's what happens in a lot of American churches. You know, we're so invested in the program. We're so invested in the lights and the music. We're so invested on having it be wonderful for people that what we're inadvertently teaching is the idea that a person of faith, their life is always going to be fine or beautiful or inspiring or, uh, you know, good you know, like we're, we're creating this atmosphere where it's not okay to bring your questions or your doubt or your brokenness. And that was, that was the case with us. And so a lot of people left because they had, they had gotten connected to bridge city under this previous regime where they were coming for a program that was well-designed and beautiful and compelling. And then they could come and experience that and they could leave. And that was it. And now we're talking about brokenness. And I'm asking people to reflect on their story. And we're talking about what did, you know, where is God in moments of doubt or in moments of, of fear and certain people that was like life to them and other people, it was not at all what they were, what they'd signed up for. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just give us kind of a brief overview of what you do in the book and then, um, and maybe kind of what, what something was that was really surprised you about emotions. Okay. So the book um, grew out of this journey that I had had and these conversations that I was beginning to have with people where they were saying, I've never heard this stuff before. I've never thought of my emotional life as a part of my spiritual life. I, I never even um, thought of um, God caring about my emotions other than not wanting me to be tempted into sin. 
And so the book, um, you know, is written toward uh, with an audience of Christians in mind. And so it begins with my story as a diving board. It's not a memoir, but it does start with some of my story to kind of set the stage. And then it um, starts off by talking about some of the emotional mythology that many of us learned in church and then turns to scripture to maybe paint a different picture about uh, emotions, how we were created with emotions, and how emotions show up both in the character of God throughout Scripture and in Jesus in particular. Uh, and the purpose of that is to give you a new a new place to start, that if emotions are a part of how God made us and they are reflected in God's character, then our initial posture to emotion shouldn't be a posture of fear or dismissal or suppression. Our initial posture should be receiving a good gift from God. And then the book turns to uh, what we understand now about emotion in the brain and the body. So I did a ton. I'm, you know, I'm a head guy. I told you that. And I like, in order to understand things, I want to go deeply into them and, and understand what's under the hood. And so I did that reading an awful lot of, of kind of current science and psychology and neurobiology to understand how emotions work at the level of body and brain. And so I share some of that in the book. And and for me, that was really helpful because it gave me access to understand what was happening in me when I was feeling emotionally disconnected or emotionally out of control. I had a way to understand what was happening. And then that gave me tools to deal with it. And then the book ends uh, with a process that uh, I used in my therapy to help me make sense of my emotions, but more than that, to help me hear God in my emotions. I think, I think one of the things that was a surprise to me, and a lot of times people will do a double take when they hear me say this, is that I believe now on the other side of all of this, that our emotions, they always tell us the truth. Now, I grew up in an environment where emotions were seen as, um, at best, a distraction, and at worst, an actual temptation from the devil to lead you astray. And so the idea that your emotions would be truthful was just not even on our radar at all. <laughs> totally. But that, that is the reality. Our emotions exist to do two things. They exist to communicate information to us coming from our inner life and our circumstances, and then to move us to take action. That's what they do. They communicate information and they move us to take action. And the information that they communicate to us is truthful. Now, it may not be, it may not be the truth you think. It may not be the truth that you hope or that you uh, that you understand, but it's truthful, right? So I learned, um, you know, that emotions have predictable meaning. And this is something that happened at that retreat that was mm, just a, a yeah. life-changing moment for me. Uh, the therapist who was leading that retreat, um, one of the sessions, he, you know, had a whiteboard and he started writing different basic emotions on the whiteboard, anger, fear, surprise, joy, whatever. And he'd point to each one and he'd say to us, um, he'd point to anger and he'd say, okay, this is anger. Anger is the emotion you feel when in your own private logic, you believe that you or someone you love have been violated or obstructed. <laughs> and as he was doing that, uh, going through the emotions, I kind of felt this reaction in my heart, like, why are you talking down to me? I'm a grown man. I'm not a little kid. But then later on, as I was reflecting, it occurred to me, I'd never in my life ever had someone say, this is what anger means. When you're feeling mad, this is what that means. When you're feeling sad, this is what that means. Never, ever had that happen. You know, just emotions are ours. They're personal. We assume we know what they mean. Everybody assumes that. We don't talk about it. 
And so to learn that emotion has a predictable meaning, like sadness is the emotion you feel when you've lost something. I mean, that sounds obvious, but if you've never articulated it to yourself, then it stays vague. And so then when you're in that emotional place and you're feeling whatever you're feeling, anger or sadness, whatever, you can go, okay, wait, I'm feeling sad. Have I experienced a loss? What, what loss did I experience? You know, and sometimes it's obvious someone died. Sometimes it's not obvious, you know, like I had an experience with my daughter where she, uh, she did something I'd asked her not to do and she was sneaky about it. And when I was processing it, I felt angry and sad about it. And it was weird. Why do I feel sad about this? And I had to dig into it a little bit. I had to think about it and reflect. And it turns out that in that interaction, I had lost something. I had lost trust that um, the relationship with my daughter is very important to me. And because of this thing that had happened, our relationship didn't have as much trust in it as it used to have. And so my sadness made sense, right? And now I have something that I can talk to her about. I can say, instead of, instead of speaking about the violation, like you did this thing, that was bad, don't do it again. I can talk about this other thing, which is more important. Like the violation isn't as important as the fact that trust is broken, right? Let's talk about our relationship. Let's talk about the fact that you want me to trust you and I want to trust you. And why do we want that? Because we love each other and we want that kind of relationship. And now we can have a relationship that we can have a conversation that matters rather than a conversation that's just, I'm the parent and I told you not to do that and you did it and here's your consequences, you know? And so learning that our emotions actually have meaningful content to tell us, that was a surprise to me. And uh, as I've shared that with folks, it's turned out to be very helpful for a lot of other people as well. Well, I think it's super powerful. We kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but this is not something that most Christians learn. I guess you said this as well, that we we really get a negative view of emotion and then we don't know what to do with Jesus when he has them, right? Right. Yeah, um, right, exactly. Like I'm, I'm so fascinated by um, this little, when Jesus has this encounter with a leper in Mark 1 and the text actually, they changed the word from Jesus was indignant to Jesus was full of compassion, <laughs> right? Because we can't even think about Jesus being angry, right? But, uh, right. but, that, right. but that's a real interesting question to go, well, what's he mad about? What's he, what's he indignant about? That says not only something about him, but about us. And so yeah. um, it's really important. Um, Mark, I love it. I think everybody should go out and pick up your book, especially if emotions are a thing that um, you're dealing with now or need to need to understand more. I think uh, your book is going to help them. I hope that they do. <laughs> My experience is that the people who have read it have found it helpful, not just that it's a good book, but that it has been a helpful book for their journey, for their emotions, and for their inner life. It's not just for people who are struggling with emotions. I mean, this is one of the things I learned. Yeah. Everything in our life, everything is filtered through our emotions. Right. You may, you may think that you're a not very emotional person, but I can tell you the way your brain actually works, the way the wiring of your brain works is that your emotional response system processes everything in your world before your conscious brain is even aware of it. And so even if you think of yourself as someone who's not very emotionally expressive, the fact is that every experience you have relationship, work, family, spiritual journey, every experience is processed through your emotional response system before you consciously think about Mm. it. That's true for all of us. And so learning how to handle this area of our life with maturity is not only essential to being a good human being, it is essential Mm. for us to grow up in Christ. 
Yes, which is so powerful. All right, friends, if uh, you want to pick up Mark's book, I've got links in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Just go there or go out wherever great books are sold. You can go to Mark's website as well, which is, you got your middle name in there, Mark Allen Shelsky, right? Dot com. That's right. MarkAllenShelsky.com. So you guys can check that out as well if you want to connect with Mark. You're you're great on Twitter too, so uh, people can follow you there as well. Mark, anything yeah. else you want to leave us with? Yeah, the one last thing that I will add is that um, I'm really excited that just recently the audiobook for Wisdom of Your Heart has come out. Um, I'm really excited about this, not just because it's another format, which is great, but because I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in the culture that we live in who who don't have the time or, or the desire or the ability to take time to sit down and read a book. And so the audiobook allows you to listen to this while you're driving, while you're mowing your lawn, while you're washing dishes. And so it's available for a whole lot more people uh, than, than the people who have the time and ability to sit down quietly with the book. So that's available on Audible. I'm very excited about it. I read it myself, so you get to hear more of my beautiful voice. Uh, <laughs> but that's another way that you can uh, grow in this area. Fantastic. Mark, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your story. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, hey, friends. Thank you for listening. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks for giving us those uh, those giveaways for the Wisdom of Your Heart audiobook. Friends, don't forget, go out to in- Instagram, May 20th through May 24th, 2019. Like the post for Mark Shelsky and leave a comment. That's how I'll know that you want to be entered into the thing. If you want to, just go ahead and follow Halfway There Podcast on Instagram as well. You could win a free Audible copy of uh, The Wisdom of Your Heart. Hey, friends, thank you so much for being here. Until next time, keep the faith. Keep the faith.